You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Isaac Mizrahi. Hi, Paul. Isaac, what a, what a pleasure to speak to you. Totally, my pleasure. Well, t- tell me, what am I interrupting? What, what has your day been like? No, you know, it's not the interruption, it's just the idea that there's a Clinton uh, Foundation uh, sort of event tonight that I didn't realize one had to get to at 5.30, and I just got back from, you know, my... Um, had I been able to do this on a, on, a, on a cell phone, it would have been much easier because I have nothing but time in the backseat of that car. But, you know, so in other words, I just walked in and I thought, like, you know, I have to leave it, like, the minute, the minute we finish the interview. So, anyway. Well, Im- imagine this. It isn't really an interview. It's a phone conversation. And there was a time, which you will remember, when we had landlines. Yeah, Exactly. So true. And and but what what has your day been like up to now? Okay. Well, um, this morning I actually went swimming um, at Manhattan Plaza, where I swim every single day. Really? And yeah. And then I went to breakfast at Cook Shop um, on on what is it, Tenth Avenue and Twentieth Street? And then I and I took away lunch with me as well because I spent most of the day in the car kind of doing email and sort of phone things and whatever. Um, I went to QVC, I had an hour on the air, and I came back. And I left at 10 in the morning, and I'm just back. So all of that time in the car for, you know, an hour on the air. And is, is this um, usual for you to spend that much time in a car? Yeah, these days it is, actually. Because you're going between where and where, usually? Well, usually between New York and Pennsylvania, or New York and Bridgehampton, or Pennsylvania and Bridgehampton. And is this because of the various places you live in, or because of... of Yes. So that's what... And so so, so your your car has become your office in some way. Exactly right. It has, absolutely. So tell me, what, what is this Clinton Foundation event this evening? It's a Clinton, I'm not sure it's a Clinton Foundation event, it's not. It's an actual Hillary, I'm with her event. It's the LGBT, you know, sort of fundraising event for Hillary Clinton. And are you, are you speaking there? No, 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 no. It's to raise money, I'm simply like buying tickets, me and my husband are going, and Streisand is going to be there, and she's speaking and singing or something. I mean, you know, it's a big sort of star-studded, terrifying event, but you know, um, but necessary, I think. You know, we have to do whatever we can, Paul. Yes, 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 Isaac. I, I, I hear you, as it were. Um, you know, in looking through the magnificent catalog uh, of your exhibition at the Jewish Museum, I came across a line, I think, from Chi Perlman's introduction and her interview with you, which struck me. Um, quite deeply, where you say something to the effect that being easily bored is a prerequisite for any good designer. I think so. And I, I, you know, I would love to hear you say a little bit more about this notion 
of being bored and what boredom has meant to you during your your creative life? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, there there might be a there might be a sort of prettier word than boredom, you know. But I feel like it's what is the big impulse, not just in design, but I think in art in general. It's I think what you know people who create new things feel, you know, in the absence of that newness. Like, they're kind of sitting there. I, I was actually, you know, I'm writing a memoir, Paul. Yeah, I know, I know. I can't wait. About, yeah, but wait, I was going to say that, like, I'm doing a lot of writing and a lot of sort of assembling of words these days, right? <sighs> I thought, similar thought to that one, which is that when I get inspired, I almost feel depressed, because I, it's so such a big thought that would now need to be that now needs to be executed, right? And you know, I guess maybe like when I was a little kid, I wasn't, I, I didn't understand the kind of like step by step process of creativity, you know. So like, I would become inspired by something. Like I would go see. Uh, a show on Broadway, like with my family, and I would come home, I'd feel like almost depressed because I wasn't part of that world. I was inspired to be part of that world, right? And somehow it was such a long journey from point A to point Z, you know? But it's the same thing about, like, sort of boredom, right? It's like you're sitting there thinking, like, oh, we've seen all of this. We've done all of this. I'm so almost angry at the status quo. You know, I swear, you know, I was... um. I was watching something. I forgot what it was. It was something that was so, like, sort of dumbed down, you know. It was some television program, and I was just furious because, like, of the amount of sort of obvious things this person was saying. I don't even remember what it was, but I, I, I experienced this a lot. Oh, you know what it was? Tell me. A gay reality show called Prince Charming or something or Looking for Prince Charming. It was so, like, full of cliches and so, like, dumbed, so weighed down, right, about gay people. And it made me mad. It made me angry, you know. And, and I thought, wouldn't it be, I mean, like, anything could be so wonderful. You could take that idea of a sort of dating show and do it in this fantastic, magnificent way. But instead, they sort of relied on all of these, like, sort of cliche bad things, you know? And it was almost like I had to shut it off. But of course, by that point, I was invested in the drama of this fellow looking for a lover, you know, looking for a husband. But, um, but you see what I mean. It's like I was literally shouting at the television set, like so bored with what they were presenting. There was this one gay who was just so effusive and calling everyone darling and, you know, commenting on people's eyebrows. And it was just such a cliche. And it was so boring. You know, it filled me with boredom, right? And so, like, but that's not necessarily the boredom that I feel when I want to make up something new, but it is kind of, it's related, right? Like, you're just so tired with everything around you that it it, 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 it motivates you to make something new. But it isn't, it isn't a form of tiredness that says to you, oh my God, so much already has been done that what can I add? What can I what can I do that is different? Uh, oh, I have never I have never had that feeling in my whole life. I promise you, I have never had that feeling. So, so the boredom is has nothing to do with the burden of the past. No, 
No, no, no, no. It has nothing to do with the burden of the past. It has merely to do with the frustration of the present, you know? Oh, that's and, so good. Yeah, that's, that's so good. I love that. Yeah. That's the truth, though. It's the truth. It's, it's, it's uh, the, the rub of the present, the, the fact that there's something in, innocuous in the way it is presented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You you also say that you your your real taste for for things is a taste for new things. Um, that's what keeps think, you motivated. I do think, except you know, new things can be old, obviously, right? Yeah. The longer you live, the more you realize that. That's right. And I prefer usually I prefer old things because they are endowed with a kind of truth by that point. That's why they're still in the world, you know. Um, and, um, and, you know, in a couple of cases, right, this is a good example. In a couple of cases, like, I couldn't find certain dresses or costumes or sketches or something or clips that I wanted for that exhibit, right? But, but the good ones always turned up because they're around. You know, people don't let these good things go, right? So you can always find those good pieces the things that weren't as good, um, you know, they kind of went away. I don't think they'll ever be heard from again, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Isaac, I do want to ask you, and may, maybe you feel a, lit, a little tentative speaking to me about it, but, Wait. but perhaps you could say something about, and, and you've told me about it, so I know it's happening, something about the putting together of all these words, namely your memoir, what, what, what shape it's taking, or, or differently put, if you, if you feel um, apprehensive to talk about it, which I would understand, what, what, what is happening as you're writing it? Are you, what are you discovering? What shape is the memoir? How, how is it put together? Paul, I'm yes. not at all reticent to talk about it. I'm eager to talk about okay, it. Okay, so talk. <laughs> the most important thing in my life right now, you know, and, um, and I've been working on it for so long, for like two years or something, or two and a half or three years, and I don't see an end in sight, and all I do is write on it, all I do. Like, I literally wake up in the morning and start working, and I just, I look up, and then it's dinner time, and I haven't achieved anything. It's so crazy. And it becomes, I, I, refer, I refer to it now as a word disposal. You just keep writing and writing, and they just go down the toilet, like down the drain, right? And you come up with something, and then, like, you know, uh, I'm working, like, sort of building it. I'm trying to give it a shape. I'm trying to, like, you know, so what I've done is I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, like, every single story, and tried tried to put it in a sort of chronological order, and now I'm looking at it, right, along with an editor, sort of looking at it and trying to give it a shape, like you said, trying to give it a shape, some kind of, you know, my favorite, my favorite memoirs are almost like, read like novels, you know, they're very engaging, right, and they tell stories about, like, people's lives by the, by the pieces that they don't tell, right, like what you take out is what's basically going to motivate the reader to read what's there, you know? So in, in a way, the, 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 the memoirs you like have maybe gone through that process of disposal, but they haven't thrown it away quite the way you feel it's disappearing now for you. 
I'm sorry, I'm not clear. What, what does that mean? Um, well, you, I, I think what you what you what you you were saying is that you keep writing and writing and writing, and things keep disappearing again and again and again, and you keep yeah. filling and filling. I mean, and, you know, um, and like whole like sort of chunks of people, like people just go away. You know, I, I write and write and write about like someone who mentored me or a friend that I was very inspired by or something. And, you know, you look at it and go, well, this is not kind of, this is not helping tell the story, right? So she has to go. You know, this character has to go. It's literally like five pages that I've written very carefully and lovingly, you know? And it's, um, it's kind of deadly, but also very enlivening at the same time. It's like the perfect... The per- that thing that they say that Noel Coward said about killing your babies. You know what Noel Coward said about killing mm-hmm. your babies? I don't, but tell me. Editing is, like, actually killing babies, right? You know, uh, I-, I was thinking that w- w- when we were speaking about shape, obviously shape, form, matters to you enormously as a designer. And here you are giving a shape to these stories that is your life. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I'm wondering if you if you see a somewhat of a parallel. I do. I'm hoping to you know, like the thing is, I'm hoping to give it a grand shape, <laughs> one shape, you know. And of course, that will break into many little shapes. It's like a collection of dresses that have different shapes, and then in the end, there's one predominant like thought or idea that kind of you know propels the first passage to the last passage, right? Or you know, like a or like a show that you do. Oh, sorry, that's my dog who says hi. Hello. But there's a show you do. Like a, I do cabaret shows all the time, and I wrote yeah. an off-Broadway show a long time ago. And that was to do a lot with telling this grand story about something. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be so meaningful or so clever or so intellectual. It just has to be, like, fun and engaging to me. And colorful. So that I want to, like, finish telling the story, you know? And, and colorful. Sometimes the best stories are the dumbest stories, you know? Tell me, uh, you, you referenced a little bit earlier um, my favorite memoirs. Yeah. Which which memoirs are your favorite memoirs? Well, my favorite, like, fictitious memoir is one called The Memoirs of Hadrian, which is not at all by... Oh, which is so so fantastic. You, you mean Marguerite Yourcenar? That's right, that's right. And it's written like a memoir, right? Yeah. That's not a memoir, but it's sort of like my, what, my golden standard for a memoir. I also love, let's see, I love... Act One by Moth Hart. That's also wonderful. And then I, I've been, I, was re, I read a number of them in preparation for this, and the one that really stuck in my brain was something called um, The Tender Bar. I don't know that. By, um, by, oh, what's his name? The Tender Bar. It's just wonderfully written like a novel, you know? I'm sure he made up like three quarters of it, but it's quite great. You know, it's quite great because you stay involved. And it's a subject matter that I would never care about except for the beautiful way that he told it, right? There's another memoir that I loved about Provence and about the great food writer. Um, you know, she wrote... Do you, uh, maybe you mean, um, trying to remember now, Forster, not Forster. Um, no. No, no, I'm forgetting. Michael, it's, it's like a generation just before Ruth Reichel. Yes. And she's like, 
oh, I can't remember her name, and her, and her nephew wrote about her trip to Provence that she took one winter, and it was very beautifully written, like a novel. Again, it wasn't a, it wasn't a memoir, but it was a memory. It was a story about a memory, right? So in, in, in writing your memoir now, you, you, do, do you feel that the act of writing is bringing you closer to, to, to your past, to a past that you felt you had forgotten before you put it on paper? Yes, yes. And there's a certain amount of terrible uh, pain about that, do you know? There's a certain amount of badness about that. It, it isn't so fun. And I still am waiting for this kind of revelation that everyone talks about, like, you know, oh gosh, if you say something and you write about it, you get through it, right? Maybe because I haven't finished with, with the process, but I have still, I have yet to, um, to feel that kind of gratification. I mean, can I tell you, Paul, like, sure. that show at the museum was also kind of, you know, kind of a retrospective. It was kind of a memoir. Yeah, right? you, you write that. Was, it was so hard to work on that show, um, you know, not merely because of all the collaboration and all the communication and trying to convince people that there's something better or that this is not so good or whatever it was, right? Not merely because of everything that went into it, you know, like the design of it and the selection of it and the, the dressing of mannequins and I hate mannequins. I mean, there's a million reasons why that was a hard show. And I did get a sort of gratification from it, but not the kind of gratification you might imagine, right? I don't think I am built for gratification. I don't think I am built to enjoy. I don't. I don't really enjoy that many things, you know? I enjoy, like, the stupid things. I enjoy eating. I enjoy like sort of being with my dog. I enjoy when my husband makes me laugh, you know. But work is not, it's not, you know, like people say, oh, you're so lucky. And I understand when they say I'm lucky. And I understand, I understand how, like, they apply the word gifted, you know, to talented people because it's such a more, it's such a more, like, sort of engrossing pursuit to create things than it is to sort of, I don't know. I, don't, I, can't, I can't compare it to anything. Well, you know, um, Isaac, I don't feel so dissimilar. I don't have the, quite the talent, but I don't feel so dissimilar. I feel it is very, very rare for me, Isaac, to feel, um, how should I say, satisfied after I've spoken with someone, um, after I've interviewed someone. You know, people will come up and say that was just magnificent. And often the 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 magnificence eludes me um and i i somehow feel that maybe it's because i'm i'm looking for i don't even know if i'm looking for something else but i imagine that there's some idea of a perfect conversation that isn't quite there right uh, and so missing uh, or something you didn't cover i mean there's a million reasons why but you know like paul yes that's part of it and the other part of it is looking back on it, you know, right. and kind of realizing eventually that it was magnificent, you know. Well, there, there is something that, that there's a, a remaining power in, in what has happened that has moved us. But the, the notion of being gratified or satisfied or having a propensity towards happiness um, 
doesn't in a way go against the notion that we may be doing what we want to do. And we may be continue, okay. we may be continuing to do what we want to do, even if we are not satisfied doing it. And even if we know what we're doing is something that we are really called to do. Yes. Okay. But like when I'll just, now I'll just add this, which is what I was sort of going to say was that like, when I look back on my life, I think about what a wonderful, happy, satisfying life I've had. You know, it's so funny. It's like living through things is a nightmare, right? The presence of things is a nightmare. The not being gratified by things in the moment is a nightmare. But then when you look back at sort of decades in your life, like your 20s or your 30s or your 40s, right, you go like, wow, I was, that was so great living through that, and gosh, I got so much out of that, and gosh this and gosh that, you know? And yet, living through it is never satisfying. It's never engaging the way it seems when you look back on it. And that's the, that's the thing that would be so great for us to be able to, like, kind of, what's the word, to embrace, is like, that, you know, while we're going through it, it's meant to be enjoyable, not like 20 years later. And, and, and what's so interesting, and what's so interesting, Isaac, now is that you are writing your memoirs where, in a way, it's, it's time regained. You're trying to recapture that past in, in part because at the present moment of living it, you couldn't quite, you couldn't quite feel the, the, the pleasure you had, even though what you were living was maybe very intense and, and very, and, and something you could have taken pleasure. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Could have and should is a whole other thing. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and 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 partly, partly the usage of words only shows more clearly how how difficult it is to be in that in that present moment. You know, one of the things that I, I must say I'm I'm learning about you as I explore your life and probably will learn so much more when your memoir does come out, is where you started. I, I didn't quite realize. I went to see your Peter and the Wolf with our, our dear, beloved Myra Kalman, but I had no idea that your life began in, in the world of theater and, as it were, in the world of marionettes. Well, it began at Yeshiva, which was the worst thing in the world. <laughs> it was so bad, Paul. Terrible. And it was like, I, but I do think that, like, you know, there's part of me that wants to say, like, every child should be immersed in the worst world possible because it can only get better, you know? <laughs> I don't that glibly. I, I don't know. I, I, I sort of mean that, you know? I sort of mean that, like, it's fine if you have a terrible start in life um, because you know, it's only up that you end up going, right? But then from Yeshiva Slapish, I graduated and went to performing arts high school as an actor. And God knows how I made that transition. I made that transition because there was a great teacher who helped me kind of understand that I was in the wrong place, and she helped me audition for the school and all of that. And so that's a wonderful story. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, like, I made puppets, that's how I learned to sew, that's how I learned to think, you know. No one taught me how to make puppets or puppet theaters or sets or anything. I kind of figured out by trial and error, you know, by propping something up on one side as it sagged a little bit and sort of, you know, kind of making it solid because it was, it was not solid, right? Or screw or dr drilling into, drilling into aluminum or something. I remember this, like, you know, I made a puppet theater out of aluminum poles, out of aluminum, you know, sort of poles. 
and it was so dangerous, I probably should have killed myself like 30 times while making that thing, but I kept going, you know, and I just like drilled holes with drills and found screws and made this thing, you know, from nothing, and it was like, you know, this step-by-step logical thinking, um, which, which kind of made me do that, and it was a great lesson, you know, it was a great lesson in making anything. What, um, it, it, I, I imagine this may have been asked of you before, but of all the dresses you have uh, designed, what is your favorite one? Of all the dresses I've designed, what was my favorite one? Wow. Um, is, there, is there one? Not really. I mean, you know, I would probably like, I would probably pick like the plainest black one with the best lines, you know. I mean, there's a jumpsuit that comes to my mind that was absolutely perfect, and I actually couldn't find it for the show. And it probably wouldn't have made it into the show because it's a big bore. It was this kind of wide leg jumpsuit with a high waist that looked like a shirt. It was made in this beautiful black kind of plain woolen barathea that was this beautiful quality fabric from a French mill. Um... And it was just this plain little nothing jumpsuit. And there was a surprise because it wasn't a dress. It was actually pants, you know? Right. But it looked like a shirt, and it was very flattering. And it was something, there was a maturity about it that I just loved. Um, but it probably shouldn't be my favorite thing. It's probably my favorite thing because I didn't find it, you know? And, I, and I'm just longing to find that jumpsuit. And and of 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 the of the dresses you did find, is there one that you loved particularly in the show more than any other? There was there's this one that I actually found that is this beautiful kind of it looks like it looks like glycerin. It's like blue. Yes. And it it ha- it's like sort of these small caviar beads on a kind of flesh colored chiffon, and it sort of hooks onto a woman's shoulders. Um, in this very new way that I swear to you, I created, you know. And um, it, it was a very big sort of draping project that was forever. I drove people crazy with this dress. And it was the kind of thing, if you shrugged, the dress would just fall to the ground, which I thought was such a fabulous and sexy thing, you know. And, um, and I mean, it was completely covered, but then suddenly, minutes, seconds later, you shrug and the thing, you're naked, you know. And there was something so, like again, like, evolved about it and and perfectly engineered, you know? It really worked, that design, and it was in the show. When you, I when did long versions and short versions, but I found my favorite, which was a sort of a short, crystal-beaded thing that Anne DeWong happened to have. You know, Anne DeWong, the beautiful yes. Anne DeWong? Yes. She Do had it in her collection. I, I happened to be lucky enough, and she, she, she gave it to me for the show. Do you do you remember the first time you walked through the show what you felt? Um it's hard to it's hard to sort of pin that memory down because I walked through it so many times. So many times. times. But when it was fini- when it was finished. Yeah, yeah. And and the night let's say the night before it opened or the night right. of its opening and you saw as it were, your life in front of you. Well, again, there was, like, such angst about how it would be received, and there was such, like, angst about things that I thought weren't perfect, and there was, like, you know, so all I could remember is the stress. Of right, right, that. right. It wasn't, it wasn't 
this glorious kind of walkthrough of something that you would imagine, like, oh, look, there's the duck costume. Oh, look, there's, you know, the clip from Jeopardy or something. You know, it wasn't that at all. It was like, will this actually come off, right? Um, will it come off? And then I remember the day that I read the Times, the New York Times review of the show, um, I think we give way too much, way too much importance to reviews, you know, um, because, you know, we're so caught up in our own opinions of ourselves that we tend to, like, sort of deflect a little of that angst and make people important enough to tell us something, you know. But it was reviewed by Ken Johnson, and it was very, very smartly reviewed, I thought, you know. Yes. It wasn't... It wasn't a, a word bite. It wasn't a sound bite. He actually spoke about what I could have been thinking all of those years doing this work. And I was so pleased, you know. It was like edgy. He didn't exactly say he liked it, but he said he liked it, you know. It wasn't <laughs> ravey, but it was very, very positive. And here and there, it was sort of just the tiniest bit, like, critical and I saw it as a really amazing achievement to get that review in the New York Times like that. Because I've been reviewed so many times by fashion writers and fashion critics or whatever. But this was an art critic looking at something. And, and I think a sort of marvelous art critic at that, you know. And so it meant a great deal to me. That felt really good. I was, I was in the dressing room at Stephen Colbert because I was going on that night to promote the, the show. And, um, and, and Shanley, this girl that I work with, she called it up online. She was like, oh, my God, look at this. And, and it really filled me. That was a moment I felt, like, very satisfied. And I actually, like, remember, like, my body just, like, reacted. I just relaxed. You know, I felt like, oh, okay, that means that it's done, you know. How wonderful. I know. And how, I, wonderful it, how wonderful, and in a way, how, how interesting that... We need the words of others sometimes. I no, I mean it's it's no, because no. I asked you. I asked you how did it feel walking through it, and you, in, in a sense, you answered by saying it felt good when I, when I when I read that somebody had understood perhaps what I was thinking at the moment, even though maybe I wasn't quite there when I was doing it. That's right. That's right. You know, Paul, you can, you can interpret that however you like. You can say that's like the saddest thing. No, in the world. it is. It isn't necessarily. It's really? just. It's just a moment of, of dissonance we have within ourselves. Right, and and you know, Paul, a museum show is not the same thing as a performance. Right, right. right. I'm on stage and I do that kind of cabaret thing that I do, um, which I'm actually getting ready to do again at the Carlisle, which is really exciting. Oh, really? Of, when? At the beginning of next year, I'm doing two weeks at the Carlisle. Oh gosh, I will come. Oh, you must. I must. I've never seen you do something like that. I want to, absolutely. Well, you might really like it. You also might be, you might cringe through the whole thing, and that's whatever, but... Okay. Like, that doesn't, that, honestly, when I do that, I don't care what anybody says or thinks, you know, because you get such an incredible sense of pleasure, you know, um, it's also a great deal of work. It's such a great deal of work, and the nerves leading up to it are probably worse than anything. You know, standing in front of people and making a noise, you know, is a very, very nerve-wracking thing, right? But the minute you get started, everything goes away, and you become this, like, powerful, 
fucking, like, genius person standing in front of these people. Otherwise, they're going to eat you alive, you know? But that, to me, then I have absolutely no reservation. You know, I'm scared to death, and the minute the show starts, I am the fucking king of the world. Well, you know, there, what, what we're getting to, Isaac, which is so splendid, given the arc of our conversation, there we're going right into what really, truly gives you pleasure. Uh, in an un, in an unrestrained way, and I'm wondering, you know, what, one story I would like you to you to tell because you you certainly never have told me fully is how was it for you being on RuPaul's show? <laughs> oh well, it was just. I mean, honestly, being on the show wasn't necessarily as fabulous as you know watching those fabulous drag queens put makeup on through those two-way mirrors that they shoot, you know? They shoot through these two-way mirrors. Yes. So, like, as a guest judge, you one was able to walk through this kind of tunnel where they had all these cameras shooting these magnificent queens as they put on their makeup and sort of bitch to one another. That was heaven, right? But sitting there, I'm sitting there looking at the shows, it's heavenly, you know? Um, and I will say, again, like, sometimes, like, the things that seem the most, unrelated to the things you do are the most fun. You know, like that was just a lot of fun. I showed up, basically, and I was taken on this fabulous tour, and then I saw this unbelievable drag show, and then I made these stupid comments, and it was over. You know, and it was... And, and RuPaul is so smart. So tremendously smart. smart. Agreed. Uh, Absolutely. I, agreed. I mean, I just, just really, really uh, adored speaking to him, I must say. Tell me, do you, do you still go... Uh, a lot to see ballet these days. Ballet? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, harder and harder, harder and harder. To find what you like. But I go, yeah. But I go with some regularity, not nearly the regularity that I used to go, because I don't think there's as much to kind of recommend it, you know. I did go to Mark's show the other day, Mark Morris at... Um, at uh, the, the summer festival at Lincoln Center, and it was magnificent, absolutely magnificent. But that's because we so, we, we see so much alike, you know, we see things so so like, and and the music was so splendid, Paul. What was it? So beautiful. It was Mozart. It was different pieces of Mozart, and it was so beautifully played by Garrick Olsen. I tell you, like I couldn't, I didn't even have to look at the show. And I, I could just, like, close my eyes and listen, and it was magnificent. And then, like, when you do watch, the things you get from that man is just, I mean, speaking of boredom and making up new things all the time, right? I mean, he did this, this, this in, the first part is, like, this incredible suite for women. And you have to see that, because it is just so much uh, like a response to the music. It's almost like... Mozart had those thoughts about this kind of crazy community of women when he wrote the music. It's like when Balanchine, when you see Serenade or something, like it's almost like Stravinsky thought of those women standing on stage with their arms lifted that way when the curtain raised. You know, it's like you can't separate it, you know? It's, it's that convincing. It was magnificent. And also you have these fabulous, like, Howard Hodgkin's um, backdrops, you know, which are 
beyond. Yes, and and I, th- th- this brings me quite naturally uh, as I let you go off to to this uh, yeah. uh, Clinton fun- <laughs> this Clinton function. Um, this brings me quite naturally to how important art actually is import- is to you. You you mention Hodgkin here, but you know I I think of also. I imagine that Rothko must be important to you, the, the, the power of the, the color palette, and, and probably Warhol and so many other painters. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So many. I mean, there, art is a very big motivating factor in my life, you know. I mean, it's, it's sort of what I hope I do. I hope I make art, you know. I really mean that. Isaac, um... It's a, it's a really really a pleasure to speak to you, and I'm I'm really glad you took my call. I'm thrilled to talk to you anytime, Paul. And we'll we'll speak soon again. And um, next year at the Carlisle, I'll be there. I'll be the one applauding very loudly. <laughs> to you, the best. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. The Other People with Brad Listy podcast is a free weekly program featuring in-depth, inappropriate interviews with today's leading authors. You can hear me in conversation with everybody from George Saunders to Cheryl Strayed to Hilton Owls, Susan Orlean, Roxanne Gay, Jonathan Franzen, Maggie Nelson, Brett Easton Ellis, Otessa Moshveg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and the entire archive is available for free. That's hundreds of conversations with great writers, uncensored. Go get it. Visit otherppl.com. And follow the show on Twitter at OtherPPL.